1: Welcome to New Books and Literature, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of this channel, and today I'm talking to former McDonald's general counsel and author Shelby Yastro, who together with professional golfer Tony Jacqueline wrote the novel Bad Lies. Published in 2018 by Mascot Books, Bad Lies tells the story of fictional pro golfer Eddie Benenson and his legal battle against a major golf magazine published a series of articles accusing him of cheating and using performance-enhancing drugs. These articles destroy Benison's career, and he sues the magazine and its corporate owner. Even those with only a passing acquaintance with the legal world will be drawn into the cunning dance of lawyers who try to choreograph every aspect of the trial before they ever stand before a judge and jury. And as if you were on that jury, You'll want to cast your vote for truth and justice, but justice isn't always so clear. Shelby Astro began writing books based on civil lawsuits while working as an executive for the McDonald's Corporation. He started at McDonald's in 1978 as vice president and chief counsel of litigation and in 1982 became general counsel and executive vice president. Yastro's first book, Undue Influence, was published in 1991. It was about a court battle based on an actual 1963 case regarding an $8 million will and reached number seven on the Chicago Tribune bestseller list. His second novel, Under Oath, published in 1994, concerned a malpractice case based on other issues he had previously litigated. Yastra also wrote a nonfiction book, Vision to Legacy, about franchising and the history of Great Clips, the world's largest hair salon franchiser. In 2016, Yastra, also a golfer, became friends with professional golfer Tony Jacklin, who adds insight into the complex world of professional golf described in the novel. The recipient of many awards, Jacklin was honored in 1970 by Queen Elizabeth. Who gave him the title of Commander of the British Empire. And now I'd like to welcome author Shelby Yastro to the New Books in Literature podcast. Hi, Shelby. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Great. So first of all, I'd like to start out by asking you if you could talk a little bit about how you came to write this book and how it happened that one of the greatest golfer of his generation became your co-writer.
0: Yeah, it's a good question because people are always surprised that I started writing books when I became an, after I became an executive at McDonald's Corporation. The fact is that everyone, especially lawyers, always think that there's a book in them somewhere. And I found myself having so much time to kill because I traveled a lot. And I was on airplanes and hotels, flying all over. And I was trying to come up with the idea of a book, but one day I was in New York talking to some advertising executives, and somewhere along the line got to tell them a story about a case I had back in the 60s. And a couple of people remarked, what a great novel that would be. So I went back to my hotel room and started writing that very night uh, about that case, but I, I changed the situation a lot, but the same points of all- Case. And that became undue influence, which was recent national bestseller list. Was, was very flattering and unexpected.
1: Okay. And then you wrote a second book, a novel.
0: Yes. After my first book did a nice job in sales, uh, I had some uh, demands or requests to write more. So I wrote a book, another civil case. I don't write about murders. Um, and this was a medical malpractice trial woman suing her doctor after she has a child with birth defects and uh and that was called Under Oath and that was those were the two novels I had previously written
1: and then how did you happen to write a book about golf
0: well I really like golf it's been a passion of mine since I was really a young kid and there are really no decent books out there about golf in the mystery genre or or courtroom. And so I thought for some time about what kind of civil case could I have involving golf in a courtroom situation. And the uh, the sports pages over the last several years have been filled with stories about performance-enhancing drugs for Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds, and others. And uh, in 2008, the Professional Golf Association started drug testing on the professional tour. And so I thought, that might be good. But I also uh, brought in allegations of alleged cheating by our hero. And he brought a libel suit, that's defamation of character. Uh, For those who might not know, libel and slander are basically the same thing, but libel is when the lies are written. Slander is where they are uttered verbally. And he mm-hmm. brings this lawsuit against the publisher, magazine, and its owners. And the book is really the trial. It starts, first page of the book is the first day of the trial. And one thing that makes writing about lawsuits uh, either easier or more readable is that you can start right in the middle of the action in a trial and then bring out all the background through the witnesses' testimony as to what happened. Whereas when you don't have a courtroom situation, you kind of have to go back and set up all the background, the first chapter or two, which sometimes is interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's why writing through the courtroom lens really makes for a faster start.
1: I thought that the book's biggest tension was between First Amendment rights and the damage done by reckless reporters. What What did you think?
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you caught the, uh, the drift of the book, namely that the First Amendment can be freedom of speech, freedom of the press can be used as a sword as well as a shield. And uh, in my experience, in my professional life, I have discovered that the press, whether through neglect or deliberately, I hate to say that, but maybe it's true, um, misstates facts, to sell papers or increase the listenership, and uh, or at least embellish the facts. So uh, I wanted to bring out how, in a trial, this could create terrible problems in that a reporter can write a story based on hearsay, based on a few tidbits of information, based on his own supposition, instead of hard facts. And then, in the repetition of the story, it becomes fact and uh, mm-hmm. accepted fact. And this is especially dangerous in some of our jurisdictions where reporters are not required to name the sources of their information. They're allowed, for example, in Illinois, where this trial takes place, in Chicago, uh, the law is that a reporter need not disclose his sources. So a reporter can get up and say, well, somebody told me that uh, Galeed is a communist. Well, who told you that? Well, I don't have to. I can't tell you. So now you've got that terrible damning allegation out there without any support, and people tend to believe it because it was written down, and and yet there's no substantiation which could ruin lives and careers.
1: Yeah, I was shocked about it when I was reading about about this character. How did you come up with the idea for uh, the reporter Max Reed? Just based on general situations where this happened?
0: That is the subject of a defamation libel suit. Then I have to have the reporter who wrote the article try to defend it. And uh, I created Max Reed for this role, who I tried not to make him too sleazy, but uh, by the time he's done being cross-examined by Charlie Mayfield, who is actually the hero of the book more than the golfer, uh, Charlie Mayfield is, is the golfer's lawyer. Um, Max Reed is, is uh, now shown in his true character as a devious person who is trying to impress his editors. Um, with a story that that is cool.
1: Uh, One of your many executive positions at McDonald's was as longtime corporate spokesperson. And I know you told me that you were close with Ray Kroc. So how did you handle reporters who, in writing stories about your company, McDonald's, embellished the truth or ruined the truth or sidled the truth?
0: When you say, how did I handle them, that's probably... I wish I could have handled some of them, but uh, there's, there's two ways to approach these. It's like the old song, no one to hold them and no one to hold them. Uh, sometimes the best thing you could do with a story is ignore it. Because if you come back and deny it, then you're reminding people that those allegations are out there. And, uh, and it's especially true when you're involved with a company like McDonald's, which is kind of a household word. So if a story were to come out about nutrition, for example, um, and we have a lot of stories to tell on that, good stories, it might be better not to respond and start saying McDonald's denies that its food is unhealthy or something like that um, because the denial itself repeats the assertion. Um, and yet sometimes you have to make phone calls without doing it publicly and try to straighten the record out. And, uh, and reporters are um, reasonable people. I mean, they're, they're, they're fine uh, in most cases. We went through that with the recent movie about Ray Kroc called The Founder. It was, it was totally false. Uh, the allegations about him were, were uh, evil and tragic. And when I went to the, because I knew, knew the facts, I was involved in the situation that was covered by the movie I went to the producer uh, three of us and um, through a spokesperson to try to get the producer to change the story and he told us to you know go away he Ignored us it was rude it was Harvey Weinstein uh, so we uh, you can't really handle them you just want to get the facts out there and hope somebody reports them accurately and most people Try to. I think more, more of the problems are innocent than intentional.
1: Well, that's positive. Uh, let's get back to the book. Can you explain the meaning of the title, Bad Lies?
0: Yes. Bad Lies are playing words. The game of golf. By the way, the, the uh, protagonist here, Benison, the golfer, this book doesn't require that the reader know anything about golf. He could have just as easily been a baseball player or a cyclist. Uh, but in the golf, the word lie describes the position of the golf ball. And so that a bad lie is where the ball is sitting deep in the turf or the grass or behind a tree or on a steep, uh, steep slope, excuse me. Um, and we all say that a golfer has a bad lie if it's a hard shot to hit. And then in the world of libel and defamation, a lie, of course, is a misstatement of truth. And uh, so I thought it was, it was a word. the magazine is accused of writing bad lies, and the golfer has to figuratively deal with the bad lie that he got, namely his stories out there, putting him behind the tree, behind the eight ball, so to speak. Uh, and you know, we played around with several titles, but uh, we stayed with that one.
1: Now it makes sense. So one of the accusations against Benison is that he used performance-enhancing drugs. But I thought golf was more about skill rather than strength or speed. So how could a golf game be improved with drugs of any kind? Well, a couple of ways.
0: Uh, first of all, I would say that all sports are better of skill, but um, they also require, in many cases, endurance and strength. Take, for example, one of the most widely publicized performance enhancing drug cases, in recent times has been the baseball player Barry Bonds. And uh, baseball, I don't think uh, any drugs could help a baseball player hit a curveball, but once he hits it, he could hit it further because he might have added strength. And the same is true with golf. A, a golfer who takes these drugs that are now forbidden on the Professional Golf Association tour. Uh, he probably wouldn't improve his skill in terms of shaving five yards off of the 600 or curving a shot around a tree, but it might help him hit the ball another 10 or 15 yards further with just the strength. And also, something that people aren't – I try to make this point in the book. People don't think of golf as a real athletic endeavor, but when you're out there walking six miles four days in a row under the intense pressure of a tournament, not to talk about time of the rain getting involved practicing. Uh, statistics have shown that those who are in better condition play better near the end because it's you know, it takes a toll on the body. And mm-hmm. steroids can help you during those last several holes be better, perform better than you could without them.
1: Uh, You mentioned, you already mentioned, the brilliant Charlie Mayfield, Madison's lawyer. And I'm interested to know, is he based on anybody, or did you invent him as the quintessential lawyer who knows exactly how to play the game? (laughs)
0: That's a good question. Exactly both. Um, He is the quintessential lawyer who knows exactly how to play the game. But it's based on a lawyer who uh, I had the privilege of working when I was a very young lawyer myself. One of the first cases I worked on uh, in my professional career was uh, before I went to McDonald's, but it was a case involving McDonald's in Peoria, Illinois, and it started out as a relatively minor case, but it, it grew um, exponentially into a federal antitrust case, and it was the future of the company depended on it, and the company we sued the people we sued started that was, these were the forerunners of Hardy's. Um and the lawyer we hired in Peoria was John. His name was John Cassidy, and I described John Cassidy, but I described Charlie Mayfield. Gray-haired, overweight, shuffling, carmudgeoning, sarcastic, clever, cunning kind of a lawyer who sometimes made as many points with a question as mm. he did with an answer. Hmm. And, um, and how he prepped his witnesses so that he knew exactly what they should say, how they should say it, when they should look at the jury, little mannerisms, which is so important to the trial lawyer, people usually think about it if they're not in the business. And uh, Charlie had a marvelous way of getting evidence in record <laughs> that maybe shouldn't have been there and um, throwing snides out about his uh, opponent opposing lawyers. And he had what we call trust me eyes, those big bloodhound eyes when he talked to the jury. Just, he's an honest, this is a believable person. Uh, Probably antithesis of most politicians, but he is um, everybody's uncle, very avuncular, wise, funny, Kimber's guy who who could uh, cut an opposing witness to ribbons with a stiletto, and they wouldn't even know they're being cut up.
1: But his opposing team was also very high powered. One was a, a a very respected professor of law, and another one was also a, a you know a, a pretty strong lawyer, a pretty strong Chicago lawyer. So my question is: they both prepared their witnesses clearly, and um you illustrated how they helped them prepare to say things correctly in the exact right way. But then all of a sudden the reporters called up and he's so unprofessional. His I, I wrote this down, his boss called him the biggest boob since Humpty Dumpty, which is pretty funny. But can you explain that? Yeah, I think I think I can
0: because of a personal experience. Um as a lawyer who tried cases quite a bit i i did what all lawyers do we told our witnesses our own witnesses when i examine you there are uh you know answer my questions listen carefully just answer when the opposing lawyer cross-examines there are only three answers yes no or i don't know you cannot elaborate or embellish the answers just Answer yes or no. If there's more, I'll bring it out when I get back on the witness stand myself. Max Reed couldn't do that. Max Reed had this pension for volunteering information. And um, if they were to say, and, and Did you meet with so and so? Yes, we met at such and such a restaurant and we talked about thus and so on such and such a date. Just open the door to our questions.
1: Ah, uh, he should have just said yes or no. That's
0: right. Or no. I know. My own personal experience, years ago, I was a witness in a lawsuit, and uh, <laughs> I felt trapped myself. You know, state your name. I said, Shelby Yastro. I'm a lawyer i my so such and such an age. I got my degree from Northwestern such and such an You know, I just, we just are up there. We want to talk,
1: uh, um.
0: and it's so hard. So uh, I've learned after i made that mistake myself that I prep witnesses. I mean, I'm, I'm, it could be pretty nasty. And I've dealt with some of the greatest lawyers. And I've watched them work. I mean, even telling a witness, take off that Rolex wristwatch uh, and, and shave that beard off and um, things of that nature because we want to make a certain presentation to the jury. And, uh, and uh, for example, uh, you have a woman in a divorce case who's asking for a lot of money in terms of alimony or property. You don't want her up there in a nineteen ninety nine dress. You know, you want her to look like she's accustomed to uh, a well heeled life. And it's the same thing. We not only prep the witnesses on their answers, but on their appearance and on their attitude and and uh, the whole the whole schmear. Very important.
1: Clearly, there was a part that. I'd like to hear a little more from you about um, about what's expected in the game of golf. And there's a little section where Mayfield asks Max Reed, still on the stand, how many clubs he has in his bag. And that's like it just blows up. Can you talk about that scene?
0: Yes, I can. And it's interesting because you just said Mayfield asked him how many clubs he had in his bag. And Mayfield never asked that question. And explain that, and that's that's how he was clever. Um, Max Reed was trying to make the point that golf is a game of honor; it's a gentleman's game, and that um, we don't need referees or umpires. We call penalties on ourselves, and um, and cheating is such a rare thing. And I brought out examples of people violating the rules accidentally. They're so technical sometimes. He made a big point when he's being cross examined, and Charlie let him into this that I would never break the rules playing golf. So then Charlie asked him if he belongs to this fancy country club, you know, to prejudice the jury a little bit. And uh, and does he play for money and does he play for trophies? Yes, a little bit. And then Charlie said to him, uh, Is there a rule about how many clubs playing in every bag? And Max Reed says, Yes. The limit is 14, you can't have more than 14 clubs in your bag. Then Charlie said, would I be lying if I told you that we had someone count the clubs in your bag, and there are 16? And that puts the witness in a horrendous situation. Now he knows that somebody's been counting the clubs in his bag. And the question wasn't, "Do you have that many clubs?" The question was, "Would I be lying if I said you did?" But of course, the implication is that he didn't have that many clubs in his bag, no matter how he answered.
1: but how were they how were they able to go and count his clubs in his bag? Isn't that
0: he, he said in the, in the question he said in, in the book it says, "We had someone go into the bag room of your country club and count the clubs." Uh, and that's not hard to do. You know, you could call any country club and say, uh, would you somebody count the clubs in my bag and say, my name is Max Reed. And uh, it's not hard to do. You can go back there and send a caddy or one of the one of the employees down and count the clubs. Uh, and in fact, I've seen that done in tournaments. So uh, that was Charlie's way of getting the fact to the jury that Max Reed Himself fudged with the rules while writing damning stories about Eddie Benison. Supposedly fudged.
1: Right. Do, do you know any real cases in which a, profess, a professional golfer has been accused of cheating in any way?
0: Yes. There have been um, several instances uh, of golfers accused of cheating. They haven't, to my knowledge, resulted in courtroom lawsuits, but some. Re- uh, ended up as hearings before the Professional Golf Association that they worked on among themselves. Um, there's also been a few allegations in more recent years about golfers using performance enhancing drugs. There are rumors that Tiger Woods has done it, but of course no evidence of that for sure. BJ Singh was penalized for doing that. Um, and, uh, it was a woman golfer some years ago, Janet Laylock, who was accused of cheating. Um, and there are several instances where there are allegations of of certain pros disobeying the rules, whether by claiming uh, the ball was in casual water and taking a free drop as opposed to hitting it from where from a bad lie, and some of those. Have Sports pages, a couple of accusations against Gary Player. But uh, no lawsuits as far as I know. And then there was the famous case uh, in the Masters tournament where Roberto Di Vincenzo lost because they had the wrong score on his card and it was put down there by his opponent because each player keeps the other player's score and his opponent wrote a four for Roberto on the 17th hole at Augusta, when he had a three and Roberto signed the scorecard, so he had to accept the four, which meant that he lost the masters by that one stroke.
1: Because he signed it and that was assuming that he went through it and looked for any mistakes.
0: Yeah, and the number, it was interesting because the number at the end was correct. He shot a 66 or 67 that day and the total was correct, but he added up the numbers in the scorecard it would have been one more, one higher because uh, Tommy Aaron, who kept his score, wrote down the wrong number. So that's how a player can be penalized and lose a golf tournament because this is a trivial mistake. that had nothing to do with his skill. And then there was a story of Greg Statler in the Andy Williams Open who, whose ball came to rest under a bush. And it had rained on Saturday's round and on, Sunday, on, on uh, Saturday because it rained the night before, he put a towel down because he had to kneel. He didn't want to get his pants wet. So he kneeled, put his knee down in the towel, bent down, and from that squatting position, you know, chipped the ball out in the fairway. Amazingly, he finished the round, and wrote down his score, and the next day was third in the tournament. But some viewers on TV called in and said he violated rule such and so by improving his stance. And because he had already scored, uh, signed the scorecard for that day, Saturday, and this was discovered on Sunday, he disqualified. So he lost, he lost everything. So the, the rules in tournament golf are the subject of many terrible stories, uh, and and those are just two that reached the papers, sports pages. Another one of the. Just this last year, Miss Marked her ball and was was uh, denied winning a mm. tournament. Um, mm. Because she, Leslie Thomas Thompson, because she moved her ball, they showed it with a close up lens on TV, maybe a sixteenth or a quarter of an inch, and not even closer to the hole. You know, just, it's hard to be that precise. And uh, it was a, about a 12 inch putt, But after she made it, they, Viewers called in the next day. She was uh, penalized. Well, I don't
1: play golf, but I still found it so fascinating to read these kind of stories of the of what was happening in the novel itself. And these extra stories are fa- fascinating. Um, could you talk a little bit about your work at McDonald's, specifically your work as chief legal officer? Just because it's interesting, and you you bring so much law into the book. So, what can you tell us?
0: Well. That's interesting. I, um, I guess I could back up a little bit. I got out of law school in 1959, at Northwestern University. And um, my first two weeks at this law firm in Chicago, a gentleman walks in off the street without an appointment, which is almost unheard of in a large firm. And, but uh, he talked to one of the partners. He said, What are you going to do? And the fellow said, I want to start a chain of 15 cent hamburger stands. They immediately said, what "Kind of jerk is this?" Uh, so they called me in as the youngest lawyer in the firm. I'd been two weeks out of school to work on on this uh, client's matter, and uh, this client happened to be Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's. Um, and that was you know just the luck of the draw. I was walking down the hall to change my life because I did work for him for three years in his law firm, and then some years later, he hired me to come in and take over all the litigation at McDonald's. And I was promoted a few years later to general counsel as the chief legal officer of the whole company worldwide. And we were a large company, of course. We were 140 countries at the time. Uh, but I also, as a member of the top senior executive, top management, uh, had other departments before, besides law, reporting to me, they included insurance, transportation uh, social responsibility all non-restaurant real estate uh, government relations which had to do with lobbying and monitoring and writing legislation and uh when i say non-restaurant real estate uh, uh it's a big job because mcdonald's has been the largest owner of real estate for about 35 years now in the country, retail real estate. I'm not talking about places like Georgia Pacific with acres of timber. And um, we had, just in the United States, over 50 offices. And worldwide we had about 150 offices or 175 offices. So basically every day we were closing a lease on an office building or a remodel or a revamping. And so I had several people working on all those, this is our office buildings. Plus the restaurants, when we close a restaurant, sell it, that was under my jurisdiction. And sometimes uh, people don't realize excess property. For example, in years ago we wanted to put a McDonald's restaurant in a shopping center, one uh, in uh, Las Vegas, and the owner was not easily persuaded to sign a lease with us, so we ended up buying the whole shopping center. <laughs> And uh, and we put in our McDonald's, and now it fell into my department to get rid of the other 90 percent of the shopping center. Uh, we had the same problem when in Winnetka, Illinois, when we put a drive-in in Winnetka. Uh, it raised a lot of eyebrows, and we had to do some of that. So the excess property and the non restaurant real estate was um, a big part of my job. Yeah, uh, we had. I think at one point twenty-eight lawyers doing nothing but that, uh, just the restaurants, uh, the uh, non-restaurant real estate. We had uh, over the time we had over a hundred lawyers working for the company, so it was it was a pretty big job. But as I say, I spent as much of it in just being on the executive management team. I would be involved with all sorts of non-legal discussions, even discussing new menu items, new advertising campaigns, uh, whether or not to open restaurants in Russia. Uh, Those are all things that I worked on. And and then if we did them, I had to implement them from a legal point of view, like the Russian restaurants.
1: So interesting. So when people think of McDonald's lawsuits, and I, I understand there must have been quite a number of them over the years, but many of us think about the case of the hot coffee spilling, and it was in the '80s. Can you can you talk about that? About the three million dollar settlement that we all still remember.
0: Well, okay, it was a three million dollar verdict. But what happened was it was really interesting because I happened to be in my car early that morning, um, going to a board meeting, and my radio was on, and an announcer was talking about a jury in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I turned a verdict last night against McDonald's Corporation. My ears burned up, when I heard that. Um, Stella Liebig, the plaintiff was granted about $3 million because hot coffee spilled on her lap. I almost drove off the highway because I didn't know about the case. And let me back up on that because it sounds horrendous that I wouldn't know about it. Uh, We had all sorts of litigation. Franchisee suits, antitrust cases, tax cases, real estate cases. And we always had a lot of what we call personal injury cases. But in our situation, they were almost always very minor by, by our standards. In other words, they were slip and fall. Somebody come into a store and slip on a mop floor or something. Uh, I mean, we didn't have the kind of cases where people were killed. Or, but I had a rule that I had to be told about what we call sensitive cases. For example, if a if a young child was hurt on the playground, you know, kids are our franchise, we can't allow that. Or if somebody allegedly got sick or found a foreign object in the food or something like that, uh, you know, those are the kind of things I'd have to know about. Um, but when somebody claims that they got burned by hot coffee that they themselves spilled, it wasn't, alleged or asserted that our employees spilled the coffee or that the lid came off. It was just hot coffee. Uh, nobody mentioned that case to me until I heard about it on the radio. And uh, and remember, we have when I retired, Billy, we had about 30 million customers every day, just in the United States. So something could go wrong one in a million times. Uh, it happened 30 times a day at McDonald's. So uh it wouldn't be surprising that i wouldn't know about someone who spilled a little coffee on her coffee on her lap uh, until the newspapers um as it turned out we were able to get that case that verdict thrown out and a new trial was ordered by the judge so there's no liability and then we elected to settle with mrs liebig for a lot less money um Rather than go through the publicity of a new trial because we figured every reporter on the planet would be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we made a nice settlement with her, and she was very nice, um, but what happened is she, her son, grandson, excuse me, her grandson had just got a new sports car, and they went through the drive-through. She ordered a Big Mac and a cup of coffee, which, by the way, was her typical fare there. She did it almost every day. And she puts the coffee between her legs on the seat of the car. And while she was opening the Big Mac, uh, her grandson turned down the driveway and turned right on the street, and some of the coffee sloshed onto her lap. Uh, And when we interviewed the jury later, you know, what did we do wrong? Well, nothing, but she was a nice lady, and McDonald's could could afford it. you know, you make that much money every 10 minutes, so two or three million billion. And uh, that's the way the jury system works sometimes <laughs> in, in the United States. We're the only country, by the way, in the world, that allows trial by jury as a matter of right in civil cases, in other jurisdictions, England, for example, on which our law is based, a judge may say a case is too complicated for a jury, or uh, there's too much emotion, or it's not necessary. But in the United States, you can get a jury for anything, and most jurors, although the Constitution says a jury by your peers, uh, they're not peers. Most juries, and it's a good system basically, but most people we know get off jury duty, and the people who sit on it are usually retirees or unemployed people. Um, because they get like $8 a day or something, and they tend to side with the big, uh, with the plaintiffs, the injured party, rather than, uh, a big corporation, just that's the thing of the game.
1: So interesting. We just got to hope justice prevails, right?
0: <laughs> that's the jury system. You know, we saw it with the OJ Simpson trial. He, uh, he won the trial, the criminal trial. And then lost the civil case. Uh, and the only difference was they were tried in different venues. And he had a, uh African-American predominant jury in one case and a white jury in the other. And uh, people were surprised that there was different verdicts. But that's the reality of the game.
1: So I could keep talking to you because you have so many great stories, but I've taken up enough of your time, Shelby, and I'd like to just ask you the traditional new books question. What's next for you? Is there another book in the works?
0: Well, I've been playing with the idea. In fact, I started a book once and I put it aside and I started messing with it again. I wanted to write a story about, I'll call it, um, Intrigue in the Executive Suite. I thought I would have a story about um, that brought two concepts together, two executives vying for the top job chairman or CEO of a company, Uh, how they are working against each other, trying to sabotage the other one and lining up uh, other executives to be on their sides, and uh, one of the issues over which they would fight would be an issue of what I call corporate espionage. There's a lot of that, and I got involved with it. in a way uh for a while i was in charge of of um of the toys that went into happy meals for mcdonald's sourcing the toys in china and uh in the far east and um we would find manufacturers over there to do our little toys for the happy meals and this was a big deal there were about 75 or 80 million of them a month and um i learned in that the, uh, especially in Asia, the amount of of theft in terms of intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, patents, um, and there's just armies of people out there trying to find out what Hallmark's going to do so they can come out with a, with a Christmas tree ornament cheaper and earlier and what McDonald's toys are going to be so uh, Burger King or somebody else can come out with a toy the week before. So... Corporate espionage is kind of an interesting thing, and it's almost unheard of and, uh, to the average person, but just look what's going on with our election and hacking and uh, uh, cyberspace espionage right now. It's uh, it's very common. I have a brother who was in the clothing business, and there are people out there just stealing designs and patents and, and ideas uh, right and left. So I thought-
1: so what you're saying is there's no shortage of subjects for you to cover in future books.
0: A good friend of mine, Scott Turow, who helped me a lot, we're still good friends, writes criminal cases along with John Grisham. But I try to show that there's as much drama when people are fighting for their pocketbook as when they're trying to stay out of prison. And, and my first book had to do with a will contest. What could be more mundane But there's a lot of drama?
1: Well, thank you so much. For sharing your stories and sharing your time with us, Shelby Yastro, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's
0: been my pleasure, Gottlieb. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm GP Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, and today I've been talking with Shelby Yastro about his novel, Bad Lies. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of categories. Goodbye, until my next conversation for the New Books Network.